I made 50000 in the stock market today. <laughs> I had twins. I went to the poor farm. I'm on Millionaire Acres. That's life. The game of life. The game of life. You will learn about life when you play the game of life. First you start out with 2000 and a car. I got a car. You got a car. Then you may go straight to college just to get a lot of knowledge. Harvard. Or to business if you think you'll go as far. I'll be a star. You may go far. The game of life. The game of life. Pay me. I'll get revenge. You'll get revenge. I've got revenge. You've got revenge. Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. So play the game of life. That's life. Right, I don't know what Christmas traditions that you have in your home, but in my family growing up, one of the things we did with extra time around the holidays was we played board games. One of the board games that we played growing up and that I always appreciated was the game you just saw in that commercial. Um, not the 1960s version, but the updated one. And, and uh, we, would, we would play this game. In my home, there were three boys. We're all just 13 months, 15 months apart, so we're really tight. And everything is a competition. Everything is a chance to determine, you know, who's ordering in the rank for the week and prove your manhood to one another. And so these games would be highly competitive, um, often ending in fistfights or somebody flipping the board over, all the wonderful things that happen in the holiday season. Um, Just as a reminder to those of you who have young kids, young boys, specifically some of you moms, it's going to be okay, right? They might, they'll learn how to read. They'll learn how to stand up and talk one day, even if they're fighting right now. It's my gift to you this Christmas. But when you play the same game when you're older, especially this game of life, it hits you differently because it's this hyper-condensed way to look at your whole life. You make decisions like you're going to go left or right to college, or you're going to take out loans or not, you're going to buy a house, you're going to spin, and there's two kids in the back of the little SUV that you're driving around. And all of a sudden, you're, you're playing the game, and it's just it's way too real, right? It's, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, this, and this thing is going almost as fast as the board game. Like, I can't slow down the pace of life that is coming at me. And it feels like I need to slow it down or I need to, I need to make sure that I win at this game or that I win at life. And so playing a game like this has caused me to stop and to reflect recently, similarly to the way that our nation stopped and reflected this week. It oftentimes takes something like a tragedy in your own life or in the life of the nation this week for, uh, right, for the government to shut down, for stock stocks uh, to stop trading for a day and to turn our attention to someone's life and say, what difference did this man's life have? How did he invest his life? What marked uh, the life of George H.W. Bush, right? And we stopped as a nation this week uh, to do that. At Christmas, oftentimes, one of the same thing happens is that as we get a chance to stop and to reflect on our life and ask the question, what is my life? What is the impact I'm making? What's the, what's the investment that I'm making? What's the legacy that I'm leaving? How is it that I'm going to be uh, remembered? And this morning, when we're looking at the names of Jesus, we're going to be looking at here a way that Jesus is telling us that he can be the marker and the identity and the legacy that we leave. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And Jesus uses this phrase where he self-designates that he is the life or that he is the bread of life. If you're using one of the paper Bibles there, it's on page 1056. If 
you're on your phone, you know, you find it on the screen there. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you two quick things for the context before we read this. The first one in the context here is that Jesus has just done uh, this miracle where he has taken this little boy's loaves and fishes and turned them into enough food for 5,000 people that are, uh, that are waiting to eat. So he, he's, he's done this miraculous thing. And then they try to make him king. He doesn't want that to happen, so he leaves on his own. And then he walks on the water across the sea to find his disciples in this boat. So you have these two, uh, these two miraculous events that are happening. And then it sets up one of the longest discourses in the entire New Testament. John 6 is actually the longest chapter in, in the New Testament. There's your fun Bible fact for the day. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. John chapter 6, verse 25, following these two miraculous events, this is what Jesus says. He says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he said, truly, I say to you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then he asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus said, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So they said, What sign will you give us that we may see it and that we may believe? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus responds, and he says, Truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven, and it gives life to the world. Verse 34, Sir, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, here it is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never Go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. This morning, I want us uh, to see four different things. The first one there is just the name of Jesus. Uh, what is this self designation? What does it mean that he is the bread of life? Secondly, how are we supposed to respond uh, to that? And so, what is this call to believe? And then we're going to see three different responses from the crowd that's here that I think help us. Help us navigate this. And then finally, uh, if we're supposed to believe that Jesus is who he says, how do you actually do that? So I want to close with answering the question of how do we actually do that. So let's start with this name, Bread of Life. Um, When Jesus is saying this, this is not a uh, sort of trite, one-dimensional, thin campaign slogan that Jesus is coming up with. He's not just saying, okay, yeah, Bread of Life, um, A quick response, right? It's in the context of just feeding the 5,000, which is also in the context, uh, John chapter 6 tells us that this is Passover. So it's a time where they're recounting and rehearsing the history of Israel, the things that God has done to make Israel uh, continue to provide for them, to save them back to deliverance. Uh, And so the context here is you have this rich, this meaning-filled sense of the role that bread has played, not just in this moment, but also in the history of Israel, right? When you think back, what what is the crowd saying? They're saying that you gave us manna when we were in the desert and there were so many of us and there wasn't enough food that was there. How is it that you provided for us? Well, God from heaven is giving manna down to his people. 
And that's exactly what the crowd says to Jesus here. They're saying, you're claiming to be this bread of life. Well, Moses gave bread to uh, our forefathers. And Jesus says what? He corrects them and he says, no, 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 no. Look at it again. Moses didn't give them bread. God gave them bread through Moses. It, It was God who from heaven is providing this bread for you. And in the same way, now it is God who is providing for you bread, which is me. He's pointing to himself here. So you, have, so you have this really like historically contextual rich phrase that he is the bread of life. And specifically, if you think about it in light of both the feeding of the 5,000 and then the walking on the water, uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're going back through this later on, you're thinking, okay, how did God show up when he's saving Israel? Well, what are two of the things that he did? He provides bread and then what? He parts the waters and he allows the Israelites to walk through for their deliverance. And so you have water and you have bread. And in the midst of that, both of those are actions that Yahweh, that God is taking to save Israel. And now Jesus is identifying himself with those very same actions that are historical marks of saving this people, Israel. And Jesus says, that is me. I am now the gift. The gift that God is giving is not bread. The gift that God is giving is himself. He's giving me to you as the gift, as the bread of life. And because of that, you will never die. Because of that, you will never be cast out. Because of that, you will never be on your own, is what the text says that's here. Now, if it's true that Jesus is this bread of life, if it's true that he's actually the gift from God, the Father himself Uh, giving his son to them, then here's what that means. Is that means that temporary things that you and I are looking to for life actually can't satisfy us ultimately. They can be good gifts that we have, but they can't be the ultimate satisfaction because Jesus is the one who claims to be the ultimate satisfier, right? So I'm going to give you a a quick gift here. This is different than the commercial you're going to get. This is different than the pop-up ad you're going to get. This is different than the catalog you're going to flip through. But this Christmas... When you get to live in a free society, right? You live in a a highly uh, capitalistic economy. And one of the wonderful things we're going to do this Christmas is we're going to buy things for one another. Things that you would never have thought to make up on your own. That somebody is out there producing uh, this good thing from the earth and they're making it and they're going to sell it to you so that you can give it to somebody else. Those are all great things, okay? Those are wonderful things. You're going to share those gifts. But when you're doing that... Your temptation is going to be to look to those things actually for life. They're going to look to those things to satisfy you. And there's going to be this whisper inside of your ear that when you're flipping through the catalog, if I just had this kitchen remodel, right? If I just had this toy or this upgrade or whatever it is that's there, if I had that, it would actually fulfill me and it would satisfy me. And you take this good thing that God has given to his people as gifts And you try to turn it into this ultimate thing, and then it can't bear the weight of it. It's not strong enough to support that. So anything that Amazon can deliver to your house cannot deliver this Christmas. I'm telling you, right? It can't do that. So don't put that type of weight into your gifts this Christmas. Look to the author of life. Look to Jesus who says that he is the bread of life. If he is the bread of life, he's calling us to, secondly, to believe. That's what this, over and over, it's, it's saying, you need to believe. You need to believe me. You need to believe me. There's a great quote that I read um, this week that talks about how it is that Jesus 
when he comes down to this earth at Christmas, when we're, what we're celebrating, Jesus coming to earth, heaven coming down, it says this. When Jesus comes, a great door has been swung open in the cosmos that previously was shut, but it will never be shut again. Life exists on the other side of the door. For we were in prison and we were chained up, but now the door has been flung open and we're offered freedom. Freedom to experience God's rescue and God's life. So where is it that we're going to find life? We're going to find life by believing in Jesus and in his claim to be the bread of life. In, um, there's a thinker named Robert Bella. And Robert Bella is, a, is sort of a cultural analyst, and uh, he's referenced by lots of pastors and referenced by lots of people that are trying to think through what is defining our day today. And one of the things that he says is he says that in the old society, you were defined, when you were looking for life, you looked to define your life, to find your identity outside of yourself. So you would do that by identifying with a family, identifying with your company, identifying with an institution or a university or a nation. You would have all these markers outside of you to tell you who you are. You would identify with those things, right? So in old society, that's the way that we, that's where we found life and identity and meaning and purpose. But in today's society, in the new society, he says, we're no longer looking outside of ourselves. We're being told to look where? To look inside of ourselves. You want to find out who you truly are, look deep inside yourself. Find your true identity. Find your, your starting place will be, and starting place and reference point will be inside of you, right? You, you see how this is working out? And so expressing who you truly are, finding true life, you're going to be diving deep inside of who you are. You're not looking outside of yourself. And then what Robert Bella says is he says that actually, if we understand Jesus' claim here, that it's not looking outside of ourselves to these institutions or people or family or looking inside of ourselves where we're truly going to find the source of life. We're truly going to find the source of life when we see that out of heaven has come to earth God who is coming to rescue his people. Um, when I got here this morning, uh, so there's something at Christ Church called Men's Fraternity or the fraternity that meets on Friday mornings. And um, when I got here this morning, there was a special envelope for the pastor, for the preacher. Uh, there was a yellow envelope, and it looked, it's, it's right here. And it said, you know, you need to, you need to take this before you, you preach this morning. So, okay, figure out what that is. So I get inside here, this is a picture. I don't know if you can see this on the screen or not. This is a picture of Nick Saban wearing a Notre Dame jersey. Nick Saban is the football coach at the University of Alabama. I'm a dedicated, loyal Alabama fan. And Nick Saban is not the coach of Notre Dame. He's here this morning, and it says, good luck, do well today, we're all behind you. So this is the, my men's fraternity group that's giving me a hard time because they know that inside of this sermon I was going to reference an Alabama player, um, na- uh, the quarterback whose name is Tua. And if you're a college football fan and you happen to watch SportsCenter two weeks ago or college game day that morning, they did this interview of Tua's family. And Tua was the most highly recruited quarterback that's, that's coming out. And when he's making his college decision, they're interviewing his parents in this, in this overview, they realize that Tua says, I did not get a chance to make my college decision. I didn't pick where I was going to go to college, right? The highest-ranked quarterback says that it wasn't my choice where I went to school because in my family, my dad makes the decision for where I go to college, right? And I'm watching this, and I'm going like, are you kidding me? I mean, I was, I was just I was jarred. For some reason, I was just shocked, and he loved it. 
He said, my dad knows way better than I do, right? He's got, he's got 20 plus years on me. He knows football better than I do. He knows programs better than I do. There's no one that loves me more than my father. And so for him to make this decision for me is great. And, he, and he, so he goes and he chooses the college that his dad picks for him. And I was just like almost deeply offended, but I didn't even know why. But the reason that I was deeply offended is exactly what Robert Bella is saying here, is that somehow in the midst of swimming in in, in the last 30 you know, plus years of, of my life, is I have become convinced that I as an individual must make all these decisions for myself. And that if I'm going to truly be who, the source of life that I want, that it must come from inside of me and that I must pull these things out of me. And Tua is just saying, no, it's okay. My dad can make this decision for me. Right? I can find this reference point outside of myself. And I was, I was jarred by this, and I wonder if you might not be jarred as well. Not by college decision. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. What I'm saying, though, is that have you been told something that you must find life inside of yourself? Or have you been told that you must find life by gaining certain, amassing a certain amount of material possessions or finding a certain rank inside of your company? What is it that you have been told that you must find life in? You must ask that question. The audience that's here responds to Jesus's claim three different ways. The first one in verse 41, which I didn't read, it says that the Jews here um, are complaining. They start complaining about Jesus' response. Now, (laughs) this term complaining or grumbling would have been firing off triggers inside of their head as the audience. Because you're reading this and you're going, oh yeah, we're talking about Israel. We're talking about being in the desert. We're talking about eating this bread named manna. And 15 different times in the course of the Exodus story, it says that the people who are receiving this gift from God are complaining and grumbling about the way that God is choosing to provide for them in their life. And so... uh, All of a sudden now, the audience here, when Jesus says he is the bread of life, they do the same thing. They immediately start complaining. Why is that? God is doing a work in their life. He is offering them life, a life of faith, a life of patience, creating humility inside of them. And they don't like how God is choosing to do it. They don't like the means by which God is making them into this new people. Right? Anybody identify with that? God is making you into a patient person, a humble person, a kind person, a person of faith, and likely you don't like the means by which God is doing that. You want to take those circumstances and control them instead of submitting to see that God knows what's going on. And God is the author of life, and Jesus is coming to me to provide life for me. So first you see them complaining. We can identify with that. Secondly, we see them trying to explain it away. So in verse 42, it says, Jesus can't be the bread of life. He can't be the one that came down from heaven. Why? Because I know Joe and I know Mary, right? Joseph and Mary are his parents. This guy has a mom and dad that are here. There's no way that he can be the one that came down from heaven because his parents are here on earth. So how is it that Jesus could really be who he said he was? And so they're just explaining it away. Today in our um, culture, it's certainly easy to explain away Christianity, certainly easy to explain away anything that has to do with um, a, a divine encounter with the world, right? Our American education system is essentially set up to do this, right? Sometimes the better school that you go to, the better they are at explaining away anything that is not scientifically proven or verifiable by data that's there. Um, 
I was at my home uh, when I study. We have a study on the side of our house, and I've got this big window where my desk sits right in front of. And uh, when it snows outside, and it did recently, um, I often just like to look in the back and see all the little squirrels, and every once in a while there's a deer, or, you know, these animals that are there, and they're, they're playing around the snow, and it's so fun. And one of the things when we first moved here is I was trying to figure out what are the wildlife that are in my backyard. So you see these different tracks that are going through the backyard, and it's like, is that a cat? Is that like, what was that? Oh, it must be a skunk, right? And, and you certainly, overall, you figure out what, what's there because you see it. Well, there was this one morning where there was, a, there was a line in the snow, these indentions inside of the snow, and it wasn't spaced evenly. It, it went down like an inch or two here and two inches here, and then there'd be like a long gap in between it. And I, I mean, I spent 20 minutes trying to figure out. I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything I was supposed to be doing that morning. I'm just looking in my backyard through this window like, what is that? It's a perfect, is it a snake? Is it a, like, did something slither underneath the snow and the snow fell because of that? And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, like, I just, I I couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, out of the top of the window, this huge line of snow falls down, right, from another tree branch that's above my window. And it creates the exact same indentions in the snow that's a perfect line that's there. And I'm like, oh, it's snow that's falling out of the sky that's here, right? Okay, maybe it's a silly illustration, but the point is I'm looking through this frame and this reference point, everything that I can think of, and I cannot come up with an explanation for how this is in the snow, right? Similarly, this audience, maybe based on your education, saying that a divine God came out of heaven and entered into this earth and promises you life this morning might be outside of your box of explanation. It might take something outside of your reference point, what you naturally see, what you naturally believe in, in order to hear Jesus' words and for them to come alongside you and change your life, right? He is saying that he is the bread of life, and then he's saying this. Listen, he's saying, you must partake of me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, is what he ends up saying in verse 50 and 60 right here. And if I'm one of the disciples, if I'm following Jesus and I hear this, I'm like, Jesus, let's let, think campaign slogan. Like, let's go back to Galilee the first time. Water into wine. Hey, everybody's on board with that, right? That one worked pretty well. The crowd is growing. Fish into loaves. Feed everybody. Hey, that's good. The, the audience is growing. This is, this is a good thing. Let's walk on water. Everybody wants to come see that. Don't tell them to eat your flesh. Like, it doesn't work very well. And what happens is that people leave. They can't explain what he means here. And so as a result of that, you see the crowd that's following Jesus slowly start to dissipate. And most of the people, even some that are called disciples here in the text, they leave because the teaching that Jesus is the way and the truth in the life, that that Jesus is the bread of life, is too difficult for them to understand. And so they're explaining it away. Some are complaining, some are explaining, and then there's a few that are left at the end, and I'm going to use the word remaining so that it all rhymes, right? There's a few that are left here, and specifically Peter becomes the spokesman for those that are left. Because Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you want to go too? You want to leave as well? Is it too difficult for you to stay if this is true about me? And Peter says... Where else are we going to go? Like, what's the alternative? You have the words of eternal life. You have the promise 
of life itself that comes out of heaven. So Peter takes a stand here and says, essentially he's saying, I believe. It may be this morning that you want to be one of the ones who remains. You want to be, like, faith is hard for you. This Christmas coming in, there's lots of things getting in the way of you truly believing that Jesus is the ultimate source of life. So how is it that you can believe? How is it that you can have your heart and your mind and your body uh, truly believing and following this Christ who says he's the bread of life? So I want to end with this. This is what I want to answer the question here. I want to end by giving you an extended story, okay? Um, In the game of life that we started with, this board game, if you remember playing that game, there's a day of reckoning that comes in the game. And the day of reckoning is a chance to see who's going to be the winner. And if you land on that space, it's like you, you take a bet and you spin the wheel, put all your money on the board and spin the wheel. Or you just say, I think I got more money than everyone around the table and I'm going to be the richest one. And at the end, whoever has the most bread wins, right? That, I mean, that's essentially how you play this game that's there. And it's easy to make our own lives uh, sort of play, the, play our own lives the same way we play this game. It's really, really think whoever has the most at the end wins. But certainly that's not, uh, certainly that's not true. Um, when I was a young pastor, uh, I, was, I was at a, a church in Kentucky, and I was asked to do the funeral for this older man. And this man's name was Ernest Lee Rapp. And I'd never met him before. He was the brother of a lady in our congregation named Miss Juanita. Miss Juanita was probably 80, 85 years old, and this is her brother. So I'd sit down with the family to try to meet or learn a little bit about Ernest um, as he's doing this. And the fact that uh, his name was Ernest Lee, I had to pick out the music. This is totally irrelevant, but I had to pick out the music because that's just what you do. You press play on a, a CD in this little small church. And so I played the song, Earnestly, Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. You remember that? That was a, anyway, it was funny to me as the pastor. Uh, um, so I'm doing this funeral for this man. And I'm like 10 minutes into the sermon. I have no idea what I had said at the time. But I'm talking about Mr. Ernest and recounting some of the things that his family had told me. And all of a sudden, out of the back right corner, this young woman stands up and she shouts at me in the middle of the funeral. And she says, his name was Lee. His name was Lee. We all called him Lee. His name was Lee. And then she sits back down. And I'm, I like swivel around. I'm horrified. I swivel around to Miss Juanita and I'm like, like, you told me his name was Ernest, you know. What in the world am I supposed to do? So you don't have to be embarrassed for me. It all worked out fine. Half of the, the family had split. Half of them called him Lee. Half of them called him Ernest. This fat didn't know that they called him Ernest anyway. Um, but <laughs> at the end of this man's life, like the, the, the one who is commemorating him, who is celebrating his life, who is talking about him, doesn't even know him well enough to explain his name the right way in this audience. That was what was happening to me. And it's possible that in your life and in my life, that at the end of our life, when the day of reckoning comes that's there, that the thing that defines us might be the wrong thing, right? The name that we worked so hard to get might be, actually be the wrong name there that it's the end. So how is it that we believe and how is it that we experience this life that Jesus promises to us? And the way that the New Testament says this, the way that Jesus says is that you hear the wonderful story of 
Jesus. You hear it over and over and over. So I'm going to tell it to you in an extended metaphor, a little bit differently than normal as we close here. So I know that I'm talking to an audience that has smart, smart, smart people, and specifically those of you that are on the accounting, engineering, scientific side of the thing. So this is a metaphor, all right? You don't have to squeeze the thing too tight. It's a metaphor. It has meaning. You feel it. Um, So that's my warning for you as I'm about to read this. Um, I love you, by the way, those of you who are that way. (laughs) And I'm borrowing this from uh, from another pastor. Um, And it says this, they found music. It was a single manuscript. It was a copy among a piles of unsorted papers that the composer had left at the time of his death. It was clear that it was a piece of solo violin, but it was extraordinary. It was difficult, and it was daring, and it was probably unplayable. Above the piece of music was scrawled in shaky penmanship to the City Guild of Violinists. The City Guild was honored to receive something like this, but they were embarrassed. None of them could play the piece. Copies were made. Each member took it home, and they tried it. They met later on, and they all had excuses. Surely this man didn't mean for us to play all these notes simultaneously. Maybe his mind was wandering. Some even wondered aloud whether he'd meant it to be played at all. It was just strange, and it was an impossible idea and piece of music. So they said, one day we'll give it another try, but slowly they forgot about it altogether until one day a man comes into the town. Years later, and it's a tall man with a scraggly beard, and he has a battered violin case. He hardly looks like a musician, more like a gypsy or a tradesman that's traveling. And he took his lodgings downtown in the main city square. And, and after he did, rumors began to circle around the city that there's a strange and a beautiful noise that's coming out of the city square. And so one night, the city guild of violinists gathered outside the window, and there was no mistaking it. They were hearing the music that had been dedicated to them. It was indeed almost unplayable, but now it was being played. This man was making it dance and leap, swell and fall. It was wild and strange and headstrong and sweet. Some of the city guild, when he finished, burst out into applause. But others of them were furious. That is our music. Why did he come here and take that and play that for us? He's not even a member of the guild. And about that time, the window opens above. The man looks out the window and he says, I'm his son. He taught me to play the music before he died. And he was the president of the guild, so he made me a member of the guild itself. And some of them sat down and they said, this is rubbish. This can't be true. This is not who this is. And they left, upset, angry, complaining. And the next morning, the violinist was gone. And the town would never hear the music again. What, Jesus is, what John is saying about Jesus in chapter 6 is this staggering claim that's here. That humanity and divinity have been united and are standing in the midst of these people. That Jesus truly is the source of life. And it's wild. And it's strange. And it's headstrong. And it's sweet because it's the song of the incarnation. It's the song of Christmas. It's bizarre and impossible, and it's almost as if the composer who wrote the music knew 
that one day he would send his son to come and play it. One day that he would know that everyone have to try and fail and even forget the music first before his son would come and play it and they could hear it. And his son would stand in the midst of them and he'd say, Don't you see? The Father has sent me here. His approval is upon me. I'm here doing his will. Everyone who sees me and believes in me can have life and have it eternally. This Christmas, um, I don't know what your family traditions are. I don't know how much your life is going to slow down. Maybe you're going to play board games, right? As you do, as Christmas is days come to a halt, let me encourage you to hear the music. Let me encourage you to see the life that Jesus lived, to see the grace in which he brought to us and live the life that we were supposed to live so that on the day of reckoning that we can be identified with him. We can be identified with the one that came and played the music, the one that came and offers life to all of us and life abundantly so that we can experience it both now and for all eternity and we'll never hunger and we'll never thirst and we'll never die and we'll never be cast out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you to work in our hearts. We need you to help us uh, to hear the message of Jesus and to be able to believe it. Uh, So this morning, I pray that the power of your spirit uh, would work once again in our hearts to remind us of your goodness and your grace, to help us to see Jesus afresh uh, this year, to help us to see outside of the frame of reference in which uh, we normally operate so that we can see divinity coming to earth and we can see heaven coming to earth. We can see uh, the goodness Uh, of what your son has come to do for us, Uh, to take our sin and our shame um, and instead to provide forgiveness and to provide life so that we can experience that and we can give that to others. I pray this Christmas that our lives would be defined uh, by the bread of life, Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.